Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. It's John chapter 20. Our text will be verses 1 to 9. We touched a little bit on this a few weeks back, discussing the importance of the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection. And we're going to go back through this more exegetically this morning to really try to form what all is happening here. We find in this chapter, beginning in this chapter, uh, the whole scene of the empty tomb. And we, we're going to find a number of different ones in this passage of Mary Magdalene, of, of Peter, of John. We're going to see their response to the empty tomb. What does the empty tomb imply? What things did each uh, begin to understand from their own point of view? Uh, and, and the thing that we find here is that they all have different ideas of what has happened. The empty tomb was not just a proof of the resurrection of Christ. They didn't just go to it, see the stone roll, rolled back, look in and say, well, he must have been risen from the dead. Mary's going to think someone stole his body. Peter's not going to know what to think. John is the one who's going to think, well, he's, he's back from the dead. He's, he's risen. But what we're finding in this passage as well is that even though we have these different viewpoints of, of these prominent disciples, that what is necessary for us to come to the right conclusions of things is to be informed by Scripture itself, which none of them were. When it came to the truth of Scripture and the Scripture bearing witness of the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, they were really ignorant of it. And we're going to find that they, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And therefore, based on what they were seeing, they had different viewpoints. They had different ideas. And yet, even, even though that was so, they, they, we, we still learn from that of being gracious to one another and as we are growing and as we're learning. But the main focus here is to go back to what does the Scripture say, to be informed by Scripture and not by our own ideas and thoughts of things. And that's really what you're finding here within this first nine verses at least concerning the resurrection of our Lord, concerning the empty tomb. There were different, different conclusions here. And often we all experience different things in this life. Uh, we view them by our own individual ideas, but it's the scriptures that inform our understandings of things. It should have informed them based on the resurrection, but even expanding from that, it informs us of all things that we're experiencing in life. That all of our experiences and ideas and views must be informed by scripture, not us imposing upon scripture or us being ignorant of what scripture says. It is the scripture that is the foundation of our faith, the foundation of what we know to be true. And it is there that we go in order that we can come to a right understanding, that we can come together and we can have unity and all of that. Mary's going to jump to conclusions here. Peter, he's not going to say one way or the other. John's the only one that has any kind of a definitive answer. And yet... Here are genuine believers in Christ. 
genuine disciples who have differing views, different ideas, and you see that even within the church, even with even among the people of God, that there can be ignorance among us. And that's not a that's not to say that 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 we're we're calling each other names or anything like that, but we have to understand that there is ignorance among us concerning the things of God, and we have to be informed by Scripture. We have to be gracious with one another, helping each other to be brought along. But as we go over this passage, we're going to see a number of those things, and we should really be built up by this passage. It should really edify us as we're working through this passage and help us even more so to be gracious to one another as we are learning and growing and being ignorant of the things of God to help inform one another by the truth of God. The scripture is our final authority, and it should have been for them as well. But let's jump into this passage together. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Reading verses 1 through 9 of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts through this passage. Father, we recognize and we acknowledge readily that we are in need of the Holy Spirit of God at every moment to guide us through this passage, to teach us, to promote in us a worship of you to change our hearts, give us understanding. And we pray indeed that the Spirit would do a mighty work within our hearts, help us to know, help us to understand, help us to be encouraged and built up by this passage of Scripture, to be emboldened in our faith, recognizing that your word is truth. Father God, our thoughts, may Christ be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so this is, of course, the third day. This is Sunday. This is the first day of the week. Um, whereas... Jesus, his body was taken down on Friday before the Sabbath began around 6 p.m., what we would understand to be 6 p.m. They were kind of hurrying, trying to anoint his body, trying to wrap him, trying to get him into the grave before the Sabbath began. We read from all the gospel accounts that uh, the, the women were, were there at the, the crucifixion, 
They were there when he died. They were there when he took, they took him down. They were there and saw where he was laid. We remember that Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, had taken his body, had prepared it as quickly as they could, and got him into the grave. A rich man's grave is what the scriptures would refer to, not very far from where he was crucified. So you have Sunday, the first day of the week, in which... Mary Magdalene and some of the other women are going to come and finish preparing his body. You know, this is, this is very remarkable. Because here are the disciples. The disciples are in hiding. They're afraid. Uh, every time they hear a knock at the door, they're afraid that the Romans are coming in or the Jews are coming in to arrest them. And so they're hiding. Some that are closest to Christ are hiding. And yet, not the women. While the men are hiding, the disciples, the women, out of their devotion and commitment to the Lord Jesus, are going to gather up the spices, gather up everything, and go to the tomb. Because they... they that, that's the expression of their love and their devotion to him. Is that they are going to go. They're, they're not fearful of everything that the, the, the disciples are fearful of. And this gives us an understanding when we're reading this. And I know sometimes we can just kind of glance over things. But this really gives us an understanding of our indebtedness to Christ. As we're reading of Mary Magdalene. Now she's not alone by the way. When you look at the other gospel accounts, you have Mary Magdalene, you have Mary, the mother of James, you have Joanna, you have Salome. All of the women are going to the tomb. Why is it that they would take such a risk? And John really only mentions Mary Magdalene, perhaps because she was one of the more prominent women, one of the leaders of the women. And it's only her that he is focused on. But again... She's not alone. One theologian said this in referencing this passage when it comes to Mary Magdalene, that those who love Christ the most are those who have received the most benefit from him. You think of the men, the disciples. You have tax collectors, you have fishermen, you have you know, just a, a whole host of different ones from different backgrounds. Christ has called them, follow me. They were there when he did all of his miracles and everything that, they, that, he, that he had done, heard his words and all of this. But something is a little different when it comes to Mary Magdalene. Christ had delivered her. As we, we, we read in the Gospels, the other Gospels, that he had delivered her from seven demons. She was possessed and Christ delivered her. And so, in one sense, for her, her indebtedness to him is, is even greater. Because she appreciates even more what it is that he has done for her. She appreciates being, being saved, being delivered from the power of evil that once dominated her life for however long that occurred. So she, she is going to go to the tomb. She's going to finish this out of her love and her commitment to her master. J.C. Ryle says this, 
It is a low sense of debt and obligation to Christ. Where sin is not felt at all, nothing is done. Where sin is little felt, little is done. Why weren't the others there? Why didn't they go? One sense they're fearful. They're fearful of, of being arrested and all of that. But did they honestly have a, a true understanding of what Christ had done for them even thus far? Delivering them from their sin. Granting them the kingdom. All the things that he had said and promised to them. I go to prepare a place and I will receive you to myself. Did they, did they really appreciate as much as they could have of what he had offered them and what he had told them that he was accomplishing for them? Because if they understood that and they understood their sin and yet his grace towards them... It wouldn't have mattered what else was going on. But perhaps for them, fear had gripped them to the point that it was fear that dominated them and not their faith. Not their indebtedness to Christ. Not their appreciation for Him. And that's, that's, what, that's what perhaps John is bringing about here. That they understood their indebtedness to, to Christ, Mary Magdalene specifically. Of what He had done and how He had delivered her. And so her commitment was going to be that she was going to go and she was going to finish preparing him for the burial. And the other women with her. How remarkable. And that really brings to our minds that, that very truth. I mean, do you understand and appreciate your own salvation that has been found in Christ? Do you understand your sinful state? I know we don't like to think about that sort of thing we don't like to think about our sinfulness and the things that we struggle with and and all of that because perhaps it makes us feel guilty maybe it makes us feel bad but at the same time what it should cause us to do is to reflect i know how bad i am i know how sinful i am and how i can be but oh the lord has extended grace to me and i have hope because of him do we understand that do we reflect upon that? And that's what is needed in order to have an even greater devotion to Christ is to recognize what it is that you've been granted in Him. Does that mean that uh, we're going to live and do as we should all the time and, and never struggle with anything? No, that doesn't mean that. But in the moments that we have those times of falling and failing, we still recognize where we need to run to because that's where grace is and that's where mercy is. That's where the love of God is. It's found only in Christ. Do you understand what Christ has delivered you from? Do you appreciate what Christ has delivered you from? And, and just because there are differing views on this, and I don't think we have to deal with that as much at all, but you're not delivered from Satan. You're not delivered from, from hell in the sense of, of Satan's going to be there and Satan's going to torture you and do all this stuff to you like you see in the movies and whatever. You're being delivered from the wrath of God. That's what you're delivered from. And you're delivered from the wrath of God out of a pure act of God's grace and out of His great love He has delivered you. Do you, do you think of that? Do you appreciate that? Does it move you in your heart to be even more committed and, and grateful to Christ? Because it was for her. She was grateful 
for what Christ had done for her. And so out of that adoration, out of that devotion, the first day of the week, she's going to come early to the tomb while it's still dark. Now, as you read the other gospel accounts, even in Mark, the gospel of Mark records that, that they're saying to one another as they're going to the tomb, who's going to move the stone for us? <laughs> they don't even know who's going to move the stone. Maybe they intended on the, uh, the, the Roman garrison that was there, maybe to have some pity on them and to move the stone for them. We don't know. But that's something else to take into account is that in Matthew chapter 27, though the disciples were not being informed by the scripture and all of that, even Jesus' enemies had remembered what he said, that he would rise again the third day. And so they had went to Pilate and said, you need to stick some soldiers over there because they're going to go and steal his body and say he's risen from the dead and all that. So they knew that Romans were there and were watching over the tomb to make certain that no one would come to steal his body. They had a better knowledge of that, even, even more so than the disciples. But here's, here's the scenario. So they're coming early to the tomb. As we're trying to put all the gospel accounts together, they come early to the tomb. The women were either right with Mary Magdalene, or they were just a little bit behind. And when Mary gets to the tomb, the stone's already moved. And nobody's there. And the first thing she thinks to herself is someone has stolen his body. She doesn't go into the tomb to investigate as perhaps the other women did. Mary jumps to conclusions. They've stolen his body. And so she immediately runs to go get Peter and John. Now, most likely the other women stayed at the tomb. And as you look at the other gospel accounts... It is most likely here that they had looked into the tomb and they had received the message from the angels. He's not here. He's risen just like he said he would. Go tell his brethren. And just as a little footnote there, uh, some make a big deal that in Matthew's gospel there's only one angel. In the other gospels there's two angels. But if you just stop for a second to consider what happens in Matthew's, go Matthew's gospel, it's not at all difficult to reconcile this. So Matthew 28, beginning of verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. See that? Had occurred for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, when the angel descended from heaven, rolled back the stone and he sat on it, he sat on it in view of the soldiers. And they shook for fear and they ran into the city. By the time that the women get there, with Mary Magdalene, there's no angel outside the tomb. When Mary runs back to go get Peter and John, and the other women approach the tomb, the two angels are inside. One at the head, one at the, the, the feet of where Jesus would be. They're the ones that announced 
He's not here. He's risen. But meanwhile, as Mary has, has left the other women, she's running back to get Peter and John. We read that she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She was not there for the announcement by the angels that he's not here. She had left too early, perhaps. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. They were going to the tomb. They're running together. The other disciple outruns him. But the other disciple, when he gets to the tomb, meaning John, he doesn't go in. He peers in. He doesn't see anything yet. But it's not until Peter gets there. Peter, he runs right into the tomb. Now there's, there's various ideas as to why it is that that Peter uh, allowed John to outrun him. Some said that perhaps it was because he had a guilty conscience because of denying him and the thought of, if he is alive, of facing him. Well, at this particular point, they did not hear the message that he had risen from the dead. The only thing that they knew from Mary is they've taken the body. We don't know where he is. So it's not as a result of his, his guilty conscience of denying his Lord Three times, maybe John just outran him. Sometimes we don't have to put any spiritual anything on it. We just need to take it at face value. They start running together, and John outran him. So the two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster. Then Peter and came to the tomb first. He's and stooping and looking in. Now this is pretty interesting because verses five, six, and eight. We see the words seeing and saw and look. These are three different words in Greek that are giving us different understandings of what is occurring. In verse 5, John stooping and looking in, meaning, meaning he just he was visually looking to see what was in there. Peter gets there. Simon Peter came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. Now this is theoreo. He saw, he's, he's seeing the linen wrappings, and he's theorizing. What has happened? Because there are the linen wrappings there in the shape of a body, and there's no body there. You have what covered his head being rolled up and set in a different place. So what is it that you can theorize from that? But this isn't a situation as it was with Lazarus. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, he was still wrapped up, and Jesus was like, unbind him. But this isn't the case. So the idea that someone had stolen his body isn't making sense thus far, because if they had stolen his body, they would have cut open the linen wrappings, they would have been strewn everywhere. But that's not the case. They're still wrapped as if his body should be there. But he's not there. How did he get out of the linen wrappings? Without disturbing them. So Peter, he's looking. He saw the linen wrappings and he's beginning to theorize in his mind. He's wondering regarding the meaning 
of this is the idea. Once John enters in, verse 8, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. This is a different word, horao, which means to see with comprehension and understanding. John enters in. Peter's theorizing what all this means. John comes in. He saw and believed. He saw the linen wrappings there. There's no way he could have gotten out of that. And yet he's not there. He saw with understanding and comprehension, and he believed. Now, again, you have genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus that are all at the tomb because Mary has come back with them as well. She thinks someone stole the body. And again, Peter's theorizing to himself, what does all this mean? John is just going by what he's seeing, and he believes, but... For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They were not being informed by the scripture. They didn't put it all together. And this is, these are disciples that had been with him for three and a half years. Had been right by his side for three and a half years. Hearing him preach and seeing his miracles and hearing him say on a number of occasions... That he must go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, be killed in the third day to rise again. He says to the religious leaders in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He says, there's no sign going to be given to you generation, but your, your generation except the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He has said this on a number of occasions. And yet, they did not put it together. They didn't, they didn't understand. Now this is, um, again, three genuine disciples of Christ who all love Christ, who are all devoted to him to one degree or another. But understanding this passage really helps us to understand our differences and being gracious to one another as well. They did not look to the scripture. They did not consider the scripture at this point. And there are times in which we come up with ideas and views and sometimes we do so without having any reference point within the scripture. And instead, what often happens amongst believers especially is that we are so quick to jump on one another like, what are you even talking about? Are you ignorant? Do you not know what the scripture says? And sometimes we don't know what the scripture says. Sometimes we don't. Maybe we haven't studied that. Maybe we haven't, we're not familiar with that. Maybe whatever. But does that mean that, does that imply that we don't know anything? Does that imply, well, you're just a babe in Christ because you don't know this one particular thing or whatever? No, it means that we all still have growing to do. Being genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus, being committed to him, being appreciative of him, all of that, that doesn't mean that, that we know everything that there is to know, but we're always growing and changing. 
I can tell you that within the past several months, since November perhaps, I've had to reevaluate and change things that I once believed. Because being informed by the scripture, I came to a different conclusion. Sometimes we just, we don't know. And I can say about the particular subject that, that I'm referencing there, I didn't know. I didn't know the extent of it. I didn't know what it was all about. But being informed by men who are much learned, more learned than me and whom we trust and by going by the scripture first and foremost, came to a different conclusion. A different understanding and I pray a greater understanding of things. But what is it? What is necessary is that we're gracious with one another. Recognizing that if we love Christ and we're devoted to Christ, that we are to help inform one another, not just to jump onto each other with, with various things of, of denouncing one another or denouncing our maturity or whatever the case is. You had three different people here that had no clue about what was happening. The only thing John's going by is what he's seen. He still hasn't put it together yet. And yet these are true, genuine followers of Christ. One writer says, let us learn from the case before us and to make allowances for wide varieties in the inward character of believers. To do so will save us much trouble in the journey of life and prevent many an, an uncharitable thought. We do need to be charitable to one another with our differing views and to come together being informed by the scripture. And that's what they had to do. There is a lot of ignorance among all of us. I mean, if you take these men who have been with him for three and a half years and they still didn't get it, what in the world would make us think that we have everything figured out more so than they? Or us to think that we're better than them. There are going to be areas that we're not familiar with. And that's okay. As long as we're striving to learn and to grow. We can't get to everything at once. It's going to take time. You may learn things that, that, that I haven't studied yet. I may learn things that you haven't studied yet. But us coming together and informing one another by the scripture is how iron sharpens iron. So let us be gracious with one another and be charitable to one another, uh, recognizing that, that we're all ignorant in some, in some areas, just as, just as they were. But here's the emphasis, though. In light of all of that, it's verse 9 that really hits home, if you will. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. John had not put that together yet. Peter's theorizing. And one thing that he did not apparently theorize was Jesus said that he must be killed and rise again. Neither did John. But we do find these words that when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Verse 22 says of John 2, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. 
They didn't connect it yet until after they see him. And then they remember the things that he said. And they're informed by the scripture. You notice that when Jesus does raise, when, when he does appear rather to some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he doesn't come to them and say, you know, didn't you see the empty tomb? Didn't that give you some idea that I wasn't there? No, he says, beginning with the scriptures, he expounds to them all, all of those things concerning himself. He was taking them, even though he's standing right in front of them, he's taking them back to the foundation of their faith. This is where you're informed is from the scripture itself. The empty tomb didn't say anything except that he's not there. It's being informed by the scripture. Did, did the empty tomb contribute some evidences of these things? Yes, it did. And in fact, I mean, when you get to the, 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 that whole um, situation with, with the empty tomb, uh, there are some, some things to consider on that. That the Jews are saying that someone had come and stolen his body in Matthew chapter 27. This is the same argument that they were using even in the second century with one of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with Trifo. Trifo, the Jew, is still saying the same thing. Someone came and stole his body. Now, what does that mean? There, that is an indirect admission that there is no body to put on display. So there are things that we can glean from that. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, then they could have went to the tomb, rolled back the stone, got his body out and put it on display and says, no, he's right here. But there's no body to put on display. So there's an indirect admission on the part of the Jews that the tomb was empty. And there's a Roman garrison there. Who's going to go to the tomb and who's going to do it? There's all kinds of ideas. We'll get to those in a minute. But the empty tomb contributes to what the scripture says, yes. But it's scripture. It's the scripture that is informing us of, of what has taken place. That's why Jesus continually points them back to scripture. What they are viewing and what they are theorizing and what they are believing must be informed by the truth of God's word. And that goes for anything with us. When it comes to things within the Christian faith, what we are informed by is not our, our individual feelings on things. It's not our own personal views or ideas or our philosophies or whatever. We are informed by Scripture because Scripture is the only authority or the primary authority. There's other authorities within life itself. But this is the primary authority when it comes to faith and life. We are informed by what it teaches us. We, when we have our spiritual experiences and various things like that, we don't just think to ourselves, well, it must be this and it must be God and it must be whatever. They must find a reference point within the scripture that we can rightly understand them. That's one reason when it comes to things that go on in the churches today, whether slain in the spirit or speaking in tongues and, and healings and various things like that, it's like, okay, this is what the claim is. Is there a reference point for how this is being done within the scripture? Because if there isn't, then this is not of the Holy Spirit. That's how we determine things. What is happening now, does it have, find reference point within the scripture? Why? Because it's the scripture that informs us of what we ought to believe and to know and to practice. And that's the main emphasis here. Had they been informed by scripture, 
Then as Peter's theorizing, he would have been like, well, the scriptures, scriptures said that. And by the way, what scriptures is he referring to? When Jesus is talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when he's talking about that he must, he must die and must rise again, what, what is he referring to? Well, there's a, a good summary in the book of Acts as the disciples are speaking of the resurrection of our Lord. In Acts chapter 13, we read these words, beginning verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. So when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to this people, or to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is written also in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will, give you the, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served one purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So, You have a summary from the disciple of passages of Scripture that he is referencing that are in view of the resurrection of Christ. And the ones he's quoting here is Psalm 2, Psalm 16. Uh, Isaiah 53 is in view here because after the suffering of the servant of God, there's the implication that he's once again alive because as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his giving. The one will justify the many. He will see his offspring and the good pleasure of the Lord will be on him. There's the implication there that even after the suffering of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, that he is alive. In, a, in Psalm 22, after all the suffering that you see that the Messiah goes through, yet at the very end of it, I will proclaim your name among my brethren. Why? Because the implication is, he's alive. And there's numerous other scriptures, but those are just some perhaps that, that upon reading first, they didn't quite understand until Christ had given them the understanding and opened their minds to see that the scriptures had testified to this, that this isn't something new that he came up with, but he's pointing them back. This was told to you already. This is where you should have went. This is what you should have been informed by. And that's why, as Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that's why he begins with that. He expounds to them the scriptures concerning himself. That's why John is bringing up now that that saying, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. 
that he must rise again from the dead. Dear friends, there are so many different things that try to pull us here and to pull us there based on various experiences and hypes and, and everything else. But what we should be informed by, whether or not something is true or whether or not something is of God, is by what the scriptures give to us. What do the scriptures teach us? Because this is the final authority. That's the point. It is scripture that is the final authority and informs us of our faith and practice. Are the things that we have appealed to or things that we have practiced or whatever in our own lives that are contrary to scripture, that are not being informed by scripture? Are we afraid to go to scripture because we know it might say something different than what we like? That could be a factor there too. I really like doing this, but I really don't want to find out if it's wrong or not. So let me remain in my ignorance so I don't feel bad. It is a, it is a, joyful, a joyful thing for all believers to be informed by Scripture because as you're looking into the Scripture, you're seeing the very words of God being spoken to you. You know, that's the whole thing about the whole service, by the way. Of the Christian life. Anytime that you're opening the scripture and every time that you're reading the scripture, it is the very words of God that are being declared. It's not we come here to listen to somebody behind the pulpit. We're coming here and we should be praying, oh Lord, you speak to my heart. You lead me to worship. You guide me through this passage. Because Christ, Christ is the worship leader of the church. Christ is the one who promotes in us worship. And how does he do that? Is that Christ speaks to our hearts as his word is read and expounded. It's Christ who speaks to us. And that's why it's a joy to, to know and to understand what scripture says and to, to be a student of the scripture because these are the very words of God. So, uh, a few other things before we begin to close up there. Just to go over real quick, when it comes to the resurrection, of the truth of the resurrection, the resurrection is what, what happened in the resurrection can be known and understood and believed, not necessarily because of the empty tomb, but because of what the Word of God has said to us. And the Word of God has been demonstrated to be the word of God over and over and over again. In addition to that, to help inform that even more so and help secure us in it, there are some ideas that are propagated today in order to try to explain the empty tomb. Because even skeptics acknowledge that the disciples saw something and there was no body to put on display. So here's some theories that they come up with. One is they were hallucinating. The disciples were hallucinating when they saw the risen Christ. Well, the problem is, not everybody's going to hallucinate the same thing. If you're hallucinating, it's you, the individual, seeing whatever, and somebody else is seeing something else. You can't just lock arms together and put your heads together and let's see the same thing. So hallucinating doesn't account for the empty tomb. How about Maybe they were delusional. That was another one. The disciples were so distraught 
over Christ dying because they loved him so much. And here they are full of faith, just believing that he was the one. They thought he was the one. And so they deceived themselves into believing that he had risen from the dead. Well, a delusion doesn't account for the empty tomb. And these men were not full of faith. These men are fearful. They're fearful for every time that someone knocks on their door. So to all of a sudden come up with some kind of a scenario where we're going to go out and we're going to preach that he's risen from the dead to the very ones that killed him, that makes no sense whatsoever. That doesn't add up. There's an indirect admission that there's no body to put on display so that the idea of the empty tomb is a pretty, pretty solid view. An empty tomb, by the way, just speaking of that, does not account for the boldness of the disciples less than two months later. Here they are fearful, hiding, and yet less than two months They're going to be on the streets of Jerusalem in the very city that he was crucified in. And they're going to proclaim this Jesus whom you crucified. God has raised him from the dead that he is both Lord and Christ. They're going to be arrested by the very ones that condemn Christ. And they are going to stand boldly and say God has raised him from the dead. And they're going to be beaten. And they're going to walk away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. They're going to endure some horrendous deaths. The disciples based on the testimony that they saw the glorious risen Christ. Understand something, as one man had said, people do not die for what they know to be a lie. People die for a lie all the time. We see the, 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 the terrorists or whatever, and they're, they're killing themselves, uh, thinking that they're going to inherit paradise and all of that. They're dying for a lie. But people do not die for what they know to be a lie. The disciples were willing to endure the tortures and the deaths that they did without recanting one bit that Christ had risen from the dead. Some are going to be beheaded. Some are going to have spears ran through them. Some of them are going to be crucified. Peter is going to be, according to church tradition, crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. Bartholomew, according to church tradition, that he was flayed alive. They died some horrible deaths, but never recanted their testimony of what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have touched with, with their own hands concerning the word of life, as Peter says. People don't die for what they know to be a lie. The empty tomb itself doesn't account for the conversion of Paul. Here is Saul, who is a persecutor of the church, who is a, a very committed Jew. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, to the law, blameless, everything that, that Paul expounds to us in Philippians. And yet, all of a sudden, he switches to the other side from the very ones that he was persecuting and killing. He all of a sudden joins in with them. What accounts for that? A hallucination? A delusion? An empty tomb? 
or that he saw the risen Christ, as he said he did. And he expounds from the scripture the truth of the resurrection of Christ. An empty tomb doesn't account for the conversion of James, the brother of Jesus. Yes, we are not Catholic. We believe he had brothers and sisters. But his brothers and sisters did not believe in him during the time of his ministry, as we found in the Gospel of John. What is all of a sudden going to make his brother James, who is a pious Jew, all of a sudden believe that his brother is the God-man, the Messiah, the Christ? What would make him do that and commit blasphemy according to Jewish thought at the time? It's not a hallucination. It's not a delusion. He wasn't believing his brother to be the Christ anyway. It's because he saw the risen Christ. When you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the earliest church creeds that even skeptics would acknowledge had occurred that actually they they would agree that the apostle Paul was converted within five years of Christ's death and resurrection. So the idea of embellishment throughout history or whatever doesn't hold up. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you also stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. This is an early church creed acknowledging not only did he appear to the twelve. But he appeared to Paul, he appeared to James, he appeared to over 500 witnesses in the 49 days that Christ was still on earth after his resurrection. A famous English jurist, Sir Edward Clark, he said this, As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again, In the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. A lawyer. Why? Because there is overwhelming evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And if there's overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Christ, that is giving to us the understanding according to the scripture that he was who he claimed to be, and that his word is true, And his word is reliable and his word is trustworthy. And so that is where we must be informed. One other theory is called the swoon theory. Which they believe that Jesus wasn't actually dead. 
when they took him off of the cross that he had perhaps passed out or something like that. They placed him in the tomb, and because it was so cold in there that he, he, he was revived, and that's how he was still alive after they thought they killed him. First off, who moved the stone? A beaten and battered man as Jesus was, who had been beaten so severely, been crucified, he's not going to be able to move the stone. Did he knock on the the stone hoping somebody would hear him and they moved it for him? And if that was so, they never would have received him as the risen and glorious Christ because he was nothing more than a battered man. But what did they find? They found linen clothes still wrapped with a body that's not there. It wasn't something that they all thought was going to happen because Mary is shocked at the fact that the stones moved and he's not there. They're all shocked. When you're looking at scripture and you're looking at the overwhelming evidence of the resurrection, it is very conclusive. Christ rose from the dead. And if we don't believe that, then we're still in our sins and still without hope. That's why this passage should really edify us and build us up to understand and to know that he has risen from the dead and that our salvation is secure because he did exactly what he said he was going to do according to the scripture. So, as what we're learning in view of the resurrection and view of the empty tomb, let us first understand what he's delivered us from to be appreciative of what he has delivered us from, that our commitment to him would be ever-growing, that we would not remain in ignorance concerning the things of Scripture, that we would continue to learn and to grow because he's risen from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the sovereign king ruling and reigning, who has been so gracious to us and extended such mercy and love to us. So therefore, let us extend it to each other as we are all growing in Christ together. Let's pray if you would. Gracious God and our Father, thank you. Thank you again for this portion of your word. Oh, Father, let it, let it inform our hearts, inform our faith of your truth. The only objective truth that there is in existence is your word because it is grounded in the objective source, which is you. Father, let our hearts be comforted here encouraged, changed. Father, if we, if we have not given thought to, to the importance of the resurrection, let this, let this time be a time of reflection for us and a moving of the Spirit in our hearts. If we are indeed unconverted, Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work within our hearts and give us eyes to see. Let us live in view of what Christ has accomplished and be so grateful. Let us live in, in amongst each other in a charitable way, 
helping each other to grow and to learn, being formed by the Scripture. Father, be glorified in us. Thank you so much for Christ and everything that he accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.